So there in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see your glory. Our eyes will see him, our ears will hear him, our hands will behold him, and this is what will make heaven, heaven. Going to heaven without the Lord Jesus being there would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, A Biblical Tour of Heaven. Revelation chapter 21 verse 12 says, It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Today, we will see that heaven is a private place. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so God tabernacled among us in animal skins. We're in Israel on one occasion because we went to Petra. We're in a section of Israel we don't typically go to. And and there was a tabernacle. I mean, it was an exact replica. These Messianic Jews had built it as a testimony of preaching to their Jewish neighbors of, of what Messiah would accomplish. And there was a house of skins that God dwelt in. And it's no different from John 1.14. When God comes in, he indwells in human skin. Once again, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. That's no different from what Moses taught in the Torah, where God can be in two places simultaneously and still be one God without any contradiction whatsoever. Now, today, Christ obviously is not literally physically on the earth. And today, God is not dwelling in a temple made with human hands. But he is dwelling in human bodies of people who have been born from above. Under the Old Covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the New Testament, the New Covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the temple of the Lord, Paul will write. Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now back to verse three. That was an important aside, an important rabbit trail, and I hope you, you absorb some of it. Listen to verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, underscore that, and he will dwell among them, underscore that, and they shall be his people and he himself will be among them. Now, right now as born again people, we've been made alive, we're indwelt by the spirit and we are able to worship him whom we cannot see. But it's going to change dramatically according to verse three because we're promised and God himself will be among them. Now, we can't fully understand it right now as to what it's going to be like, but somehow the triune God will be present with us in the same way he was present with Adam. And it will happen in a new universe with brand new bodies in a new city, and we will have physical access to God in the Spirit and through his Son and in eternity, if you, don't, if you know Christ as Lord, this is something you have to look forward to, to being in the very presence of God. I hope you understood, if you've been with us in this series, the presence of God in the future will be the chief terror for the unbeliever. For those who know the Lord, it will be their chief delight. 
So there in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see your glory. Our eyes will see him, our ears will hear him, our hands will behold him, and this is what will make heaven, heaven. Going to heaven without the Lord Jesus being there would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. It'd be like building a house to move into as a new married couple and your husband wants to live in another city. No, the focal point of John's whole description is this new Jerusalem, the bride city, where the bride of the Old Testament and the bride of the New Testament will be. Behold, he goes on to say, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and he himself will be among them. Uninterrupted, eternal fellowship. That's why I say this is a pleasing place. And notice, described here in verse four, um, there is a, a time where there's no eternal sorrow. There'll be some initial sorrow. You say there'll be some initial sorrow? Look at verse four. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paul describes the judgment of the just, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. It's a very sobering reality. Most Christians are very flippant about the fact that as redeemed, saved people, that they will give an account for how they have lived in these redeemed bodies. You know, we're down 30% in worship today. Why? Because there's an air show going on. I have no problems with people going to the air show. I'm sure we had more than 915 service because of the air show. It's a great thing to go to. But there are some parents who sent a message to their children this morning that the air show was more important than gathering with the people of God and worshiping the living God. And that's going to be implanted in the hearts of some children. Imagine if all our nursery workers said, oh, there's an air show, Randy, I can't come. And as every week God brings unchurched people and they come and there's no place for their child. Why, because someone had to go see the air show. Listen, at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul describes that people will suffer loss. And so God, he doesn't use some unnamed angel. It's very personal. God, even through our disobedience and compromise, will himself wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, these are not tears of repentance. No one can repent in heaven. This is over. This is done. The judgment has already taken place at the end of chapter 20. But we can say that we will never shed another tear of more mourning or pain or sorrow, which is contextual. It doesn't mean that we'll never shed another tear. In fact, I suspect in heaven, our tear ducts will work perfectly. Some of us can't cry when we need to. I was on the phone this week with a tough, strapping young man, and he wept, and I wept with him. Some of us think we're too cool not to cry. But when we see the glory and splendor of heaven, we will probably shed tears of joy. Now notice, this place is so different. He has to give four no longers to further describe it. He says, and there will no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the Bible tells us that God kept his promise. You shall surely die. They died that day. But in heaven, there will be no more death. Not even the skin cells in your body. I saw some ad on the internet this week about how my mattress has 50 pounds of skin cells in it. I said, that's disgusting. I guess I should burn this thing. Not even skin cells will fall off your body. No weakness, no disease, no aches, no pains, no decay, no coffins. The funeral homes will be out of business. Where we're going, there's no mental asylums, there's no triage, there's no prosthetics, there's no braces, there's no hospitals, there's no emergency rooms. It's a magnificent place. And the reason for this, John tells us, no longer even any pain. This is the last time pain is even mentioned in the Bible. Some of you are sitting here this morning with pain in your body. No longer any pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. In other words, the old order is now gone. The old way of life, the old earth, the old heavens, it's obliterated. This is a new Jerusalem sitting on a new earth. It's really the great magnificent reversal that God's going to bring about. No death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. It will all pass away. You say, this just seems too good to be true. You know what they say about things that are too good to be true? They're too good to be true, depending on who's doing the same. And so God wants to underscore who's doing the same. Look at verse 5. It's like the Spirit of God anticipates someone's reaction. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right For these words are faithful and true. In other words, you can count on this because my promises are faithful and they will all come true. Listen, most people love to move into a brand new home. Someday we're going to move into a brand new world. And this brand new world will be absent of all of the problems that we see. Death will be a thing of the past. There'll no more be any crying or sighing as we know today. And God, who is faithful and true, says this. Now, heaven's a permanent place. This earth is not permanent. Heaven is a prepared place. It has to be prepared because this world has fallen. Heaven is a pleasing place. Notice also, four in your outline, heaven is a purified place. Heaven is a purified place. Read now with me in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, the one speaking is the same person who's on verse in verse 5. This is God the Father who describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And by the way, in chapter 22 and verse 13, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. Why? Because they are equal. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he says, I am the alpha. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the omega. That's the last letter. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm I'm from the A to the Z, you could say. In other words, if human existence and human knowledge and human history somehow are an alphabet, I am the alpha and the omega. There's nothing before me and there's nothing beyond me. And then to those who are thirsty, they are given a promise Without cost, notice the spring of the water of life. And of course, he's not describing physical thirst. 
He's describing spiritual thirst. Remember the Lord Jesus in John 7, now on the last day of the great day of the feast. If any man is thirsty, spiritually speaking, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John parenthetically adds, these things he wrote about the Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. God the Father who's inseparable from the Son, inseparable from the Spirit, makes a similar promise. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You could render it as the Net Bible free of charge. You could put it as a gift. Dorian, you can't pay for this. It is the gift of God. You cannot buy eternal life, and unless you humbly receive it, you'll never come to this place. But God is saying every thirst, every need, every desire is going to be satisfied from the depths within. It's all going to change. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes. If you're with me in my series on Revelation, God uses that phrase eight different times. Overcomers, to distinguish not a victorious Christian from a Christian who's not victorious, but to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Because in the truest sense, every believer, biblically speaking, is an overcomer. You're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by persevering. But if you are saved, you will overcome. You will persevere to the end. Listen to what John writes. Put out next to verse 7, 1 John 5, 4 and 5 in the margin. Let me read you that verse. John will write in his first letter, For whatever is born of God, or literally begotten, or born again, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So this promise is not just for some spiritual elite person. This is for every child of God. He who overcomes will inherit these things. An intimate, close relationship where you will receive the living water from the living God and the deepest depth of your soul for the first time. We've got just a down pause, down pause. We have just a pledge of what's to come. You're going to experience fully what God has for you. Now, by contrast, look at verse 8. But you should circle that. What a distinction this little word but makes because everything from verse 1 through 7 is glorious, but now comes the distinction with this little conjunction. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He is contrasting those who practice the sins of an unbelieving world who will be excluded from the new Jerusalem, whose destination is the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. These are not overcomers. These are people who are overcome by sin. And the world, well, they consider us today as losers. Wasn't always that way in America, but now we're the losers. But in the end, very sadly... It will be the unbelievers who will be seen to be the true losers. God speaks of them as cowardly. People who are afraid to take a stance for the Lord. The person who refuses to truly believe, which is the mother's sin in this whole list, I suppose, will be cowardly. 
which is why Jesus said, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Why? Because they're more interested in what the world thinks about them, what the unbelieving world thinks, than what God thinks. Also here in verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable. The word abominable means to pollute. Indeed, because they've indulged in sin and wickedness and rebellion, their mind, spirit, and body is just characterized by pollution. Notice further, they're called murderers. The word that is used here is described of someone who premeditatively takes an innocent life. And yes, that would include the abortionists. And then he adds immoral persons. It's the word pornos. We get our word pornography from it. It would include not only the adulterer, extramarital sex, the fornicator, premarital sex, the homosexual, the transgender, the rapist, the pedophile, the male prostitute, the movie producer who, who paints these things before the eyes now even of little children. You know, it's sad where our government is. Our government is saying last week that, you know, preachers like me, and it's coming, especially if we come to this point where we have digital money. And we're probably not far away. But preachers like me who would speak against homosexuality and transgenderism, that we're doing these people harm. And they say that transgender people are committing suicide because of things that we're teaching. Hey, listen, if you're transgender and you're homosexual and for some reason you've stumbled on this broadcast, you're welcomed here. But I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is, just like the fornicator and the adulterer who may be heterosexual, your homosexual sins are also evil and they need to be forgiven and you need to repent of it. And the one who's causing people to commit suicide are those people all the way to the highest office in the land who say, this is a good thing, I've got your back. They are denying the way God wired a person and that's why they're so confused and they're going against their very spiritual DNA and they're taking their own lives. Then he adds sorcerers. It's the word pharmacos. We get our word pharmacy of it from it. It's the drug abuser. And what is happening through our southern border is just so sad. Young people taking some drugs that are milder, not knowing that they're getting fentanyl. And of course, uh, the illicit use of drugs is in mind here. And even in the first century, people who worshipped using drugs. Remember in Ephesus? Those were such people. But when they heard the gospel and they repented and believed, they took all of their magic arts, which would have included pharmakia, illicit drugs to worship their false gods, and they destroyed them, they burned them. That's what repentance does. Then he mentions idolaters. John in his first epistle describes idolatry as something or someone that you put above God. Murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters. And then he adds, in all liars. And he will elaborate on that in 22.15 by saying, everyone who loves and practices lying. Now you're probably thinking, Pastor Carl, you've just condemned an awful lot of people to hell. Look, I didn't condemn anyone. I'm just repeating and explaining what God said through John. However, every one of us 
is here somewhere. The point of the passage is not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The point of the passage is that everyone is guilty. Everyone is headed towards hell. And unless you repent, you perish. Unless you call upon Jesus in faith to save you and begin to change you, you won't make it. Your destiny will be with the rest of these in the lake of fire. And again, unbelief is the mother's sin of it all. A refusal to bow to Jesus is Lord. Two more, very quickly. I'm out of time, but I'm just going to touch on them. Heaven is a priceless place. Heaven is a priceless place. He says here in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, if you remember, there's sealed, trumpet, and bold judgments. This is one of the seven angels who have one of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's describing this city as the bride. It's an interesting description. If you go to buy a house today, typically beforehand, you can see it. You can look at some magazine, some computer site. You don't even have to go to Google Earth anymore. You can uh, go to the local real estate agent, and he's got his little drone that flies over and shows you who's living next door and everything else. And, and what John is doing here, or what he's experiencing here, is an aerial view. This angel is going to give him an aerial view. Of, we haven't even gotten in heaven yet. We're just looking at the outside this morning. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. And he takes him up on this mountain and he gives him a picture of what is going to happen. Again, we read earlier in uh, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride. So question is, is it the people who are called the bride or is it the city? And the answer is yes, (laughs) because they're inseparable. The bride of Israel, the bride of Christ, are in the bride city. And really, you can't separate the person from the place. You know, a church burns down and some pastor's being interviewed on TV. And he said, well, we lost our church, but the church really isn't the building, it's the people. They're doing the same thing. That's what John is doing here. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out from heaven. Now, let's gain some, again, geographical and contextual evidence chronologically, this happens after the millennial reign. Again, the millennial reign is over. The, the great white throne judgment is over. A new heaven and a new earth suddenly appear because the old heaven and the old earth disappear. Again, this is not some fixer-up plan. And he's carried away in the spirit, geographically, somehow to a high mountain because he wants him to get this overall magnificent picture of what it's like. Verse 11, as he watches it descend, it's characterized as having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So here he is on top of this high mountain, and he sees it glow with the glory of God, having the glory of God as, he's using a simile here. Now, sometimes Jasper is used literally, physically, but here is a simile. In other words, it, it's so brilliant, so glorious, he takes one of the most beautiful stones he can describe, and as its light fragments, he sees this glorious picture beyond what he could have ever imagined, reflecting the glory of God. John will later write in the Revelation that the new Jerusalem itself won't even need lights because God's Son will light it. Finally, heaven is a private place. Not only is it priceless, it's private. 
Beginning now in verse 12 through 14, he gives us a few design specifications again from the outside. Let me just read those. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I think it's significant that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written here, and the names of the 12 apostles are written here. One representing old covenant believers, Jews and proselytes, Gentile converts, and the other representing the New Testament church. And again, this is the final nail in the coffin of those who embrace covenant theology who say the church has replaced Israel. God has given an eternal declaration in the capital city of how he worked through Israel and by the way, how he's gonna work through Israel in the future. It's beautiful. There's coming a day when Jew and Gentile will be together, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints. It's one big Family, And if this bores you, it concerns me. If it bores you, you should take a hard look inside. Because you could run into a sign that says, private, no admittance. It's not by accident that he describes these 12 high walls with these angelic beings guarding it as if to illustrate that unless you are a member, you cannot come. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father in the new Jerusalem, in the Father's house, but through me. And if you don't receive Christ, I can promise you, if you die that way, you will even remember this sermon and this preacher and this pulpit inviting you this morning to call upon him. You receive him, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. You reject him, and you will spend an eternity of regret that you can never, ever change. Our Father, we thank you that you wish none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Help someone this morning within the sound of my voice and simple childlike faith to call upon Jesus. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Lord Jesus, you said I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Father, as I preach, you are seeking someone today. And I pray in simple childlike faith that they would receive the water of life without cost. Thank you that you made it available through the blood of the cross. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Our Father, we look at this world and it seems to be decaying and it seems to be in a downward spiral. But we thank you that this is not our final home that we are just passing through as aliens and strangers, that you are coming back for your people. But until you do, may we be faithful stewards of the gospel to tell people how they can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. 
Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 029. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.